some people believe that if they had the symptoms of COVID-19 and they went to a healthcare facility, then the, the physicians or the healthcare staff would shoot them on site because they don't want that disease to be uh, treated at the facility or whatnot. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. told me what you wanted to hear next on the podcast so here it is COVID-19 in a refugee camp and I thought we might as well start with the biggest camp in the world right Kutapalong camp in Cox's Bazaar Bangladesh home to over 1.6 million Rohingya refugees this episode is with Dr Miriam who has been working in Kutapalong camp since 2018 I spent some time in the camp at the end of last year and I got to know Miriam as a friend We recorded this conversation together in person whilst I was there. Little did we know what 2020 had in store and how relevant her words and insight into healthcare in the camp would be. She has since been updating me where possible on the situation in the camp now, and I've included these voice notes to bring you the most well-rounded account of dealing with a pandemic in a refugee camp that I possibly could. I'll let Miriam introduce herself. So I'm a Bangladeshi physician, but I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. And I came here because of the Rohingya refugee crisis, basically. That started in 2017. I mean, it didn't start, but escalated in 2017 when we had like the, this mass exodus of approximately 700,000 Rohingyas from Myanmar into Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And since then, you know, this uh, refugee camp has been formed like the world's largest refugee camp in Cox Bazar. And this is where I have been working since uh, 2018. Once I came here, my understanding and my perspective on things changed dramatically. So I actually learned what uh, it meant to provide care in a very low resource settings. And it may sound odd because I'm speaking about Bangladesh, Bangladesh being a low income country, already having low resources where healthcare is. uh, concerned compared to here, you actually start from scratch. You don't think about hospitals where we have access to things like laboratories and x-rays and uh, specialists who can do all kinds of things. You think about what can I put in a box, go into a community of a 1,000 people, 10,000 people, 200,000 people, and what can I do with them with whatever I have in, you know, in your box, in, yeah, in my your box, box of tricks. Yeah. Yeah. You just think about what you can do with 
a limited number of people and a limited number of supplies and a limited number of drugs. And that's like the basis of, you know, any type of humanitarian work. You have a very limited number of things which you can use to help. Uh, well, I'm using the word help, but really, you know, provide service to the uh, people. Basically, what I realized was there's a lot that goes in to make your box very resourceful. You know, there's been so much of innovation in terms of medicine and how we can actually diagnose things without like extensive or expensive diagnostics, without extensive tests. You realize how valuable your clinical skills are when you're working in a setting like this. Because here, you, your two eyes, your two hands, your ears, you're using your five senses to kind of find out what's wrong with this patient and then do the best you can with what you have. And when you don't have something, then you're thinking on your feet about how you can get this patient to a place where they can get what they need. That is like the basic of medicine, but that's not, that's not it because health is not just a disease and then you give medicines. It's actually everything else that surrounds a person. So I could think like if a patient comes to me and they come with a problem, I am seeing five different things that they could have done at home that would have made it unnecessary for them to come to me. But, but the thing is, they cannot do those five different things. For example, drinking clean water or sleeping on a comfortable bed or eating enough food. And the reason why they can't do any of this is because they are in a refugee camp where access to clean water is questionable. You, they are limited to whatever is provided to them through humanitarian aid. And sometimes that means sleeping in a tent on a floor. Sometimes... That means waiting for hours in line in the hot sun for food rations. Sometimes that means uh, not being able to access food rations properly because all of a sudden this low-income country like Bangladesh is dealing with such a huge population of the Rohingya community who have been through so much, who've crossed borders, who've walked miles, who've, got, you know, like who've swam or been on boats, and they've just made this huge journey to this other country where they don't know anything and they don't know anyone. Even things like getting food, you know, at the beginning, the Rohingyas did not know uh, about how they could access food. So once the humanitarian assistance came, it was like identifying like even simple things like having electing heads of households, you know, like a household with five people versus a household with 12 people. Um, a household with five people has one head and gets a certain amount of rations. A household with 12 people gets the same amount of rations. That means in the 12 people household, they're getting actually less food. So even like figuring out these things and how to solve these problems, this, these things took time. And all of these impacted directly their health. Because if you're not eating enough, your immune system weakens, you become more prone to infections and all kinds of diseases from external factors. Your body weakens, you feel more tired, you're more likely to go to a health facility looking for medicines and medications. This is like an example of something that could be addressed before they actually come to us. 
I talk too much. No, this is I could listen to you all day. <laughs> so in your role as a doctor mm. in this environment, do you find that you have to take a much more holistic approach and mm. consider those things like, okay, really what you need is to sleep on a comfortable bed. Is there something that I can do for you to make that happen? Yes, most definitely. So every treatment process has different parts. Uh, you give drug treatment, but you also provide advice about lifestyle, about uh, taking the medications, when to take them, how to take them. You, ta- you give advice about things that they can do to prevent other diseases from happening. So a, a regular part of the advice that we would give to all patients who are coming in with you know all kinds of um, symptoms was drink more water. But the thing is, you can tell patients to drink more water, but the patients are living in a refugee camp which do not have an adequate lighting after dark. There were no toilets in their shelters. If they had to use the toilet, they would have to go outside of the shelter at night when it's dark. Mm-hmm. And they don't know this area. They're new to this place. They don't know the people who are, who, who are living around them. It's a situation of very poor security. So you are going to be afraid to go to the toilet at night simply because you're going to be afraid of being attacked by somebody or falling somewhere uh, or because the terrain is not so smooth. Yeah, and people don't have running water in their shelters, exactly. so they're going to the bathrooms and the washrooms. To... And the washrooms are communal washrooms. They're shared by multiple households. And you don't know who's going to be there. You don't know if they're going to attack you for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And it's dark and you can't see anything. And if you had to go, you'd have to be accompanied by someone because you're too afraid to go on your own. And then if you're leaving your child alone at home and you're going to the toilet, it's like so many layers of uh, difficulty and so many things to consider just for going to the washroom. Yeah, and I guess these are things that you hadn't come up before, come up against before in your practice. So you had to really deepen your understanding of the whole situation for people in the camp, right? Yes, exactly that. It's just... It's like it's just a simple thing like drinking water will make you feel better but you will not drink water. Patients will like you I could say this a 100 times and they will still stop drinking water after like mm-hmm. 1 p.m. because they don't want to use the toilet at night. Because yeah. it it's not, it's not safe or it's far away. And these are just simple things that we take for granted so easily cuz my toilet is like like a meter away. It takes <laughs> me like like 15 seconds to reach my toilet. And I don't even think about it. It's, but for them, I will not drink water because I have to go to the toilet. Like that is something that, you know, yeah. you, we, have to, so we have to factor these things in when we try to give advice to the patients. The diseases that affect the patients here are similar to the diseases that affect patients in the Western world as well, or like in a more developed part of the world as well. Patients here have diabetes, patients here have hypertension, patients here have uh, heart disease and uh, kidney diseases. Same uh, diseases affecting uh, everyone in every part of the world. However, the advice that we can give them, like I would give a patient, say, if I was in a high-resource setting, would be to tell patients to take a walk for 30 minutes every day and to eat more fruits and vegetables and eat less carbohydrates. In this setting, the patients are um, completely dependent on the rations that they receive, and what they receive is rice and lentils, and rice is carbohydrates. And oil, right? <laughs> and oil, all of which is provided to them in consideration 
of providing basic energy sources. So when they plan what rations are given to refugees, they take into, into consideration what their culture is, what they're used to eating, and whether they can adequately provide basic food, uh, you know, energy sources, carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. But the thing is, that applies in a very emergency situation. But when the situation, when the crisis becomes chronic and you still have patients with all of these diseases, uh, like diabetes, for example, and they are only having access to rice, and then you have to give them dietary advice to keep their blood sugar in control, how does one go about doing that? So you can't say to them, don't eat rice because now they only have <laughs> rice. What, what, I can't say anything else to them without giving them an alternative solution. Like uh, we, we say don't eat so much rice, but eat more fruit. But you can't buy fruits because that requires money and they are a refugee population with little or no access to money. So how are they going to buy fruits? And fruits are expensive. With diet, how will they manage their disease? So what do you do? What do you advise them? So we do find balances. So for example, we say space out your meals instead of having three large meals of carbohydrates at, uh, in a day, space it out, break it up and reduce the amount of mm. rice you're having at a time. That, like, so all of that is, again, it goes back to physiology. It goes back to... Uh, how the human body works and how the disease works and understanding that and, you know, sort of trying to figure out uh, a way to uh, provide advice that uh, may potentially help keep their disease in control and prevent their bodies from getting worse while still, you know, fitting within the realm of what they have access to. What we practice, it's called best practice. So it's evidence-based. It has to be founded in um, studies. You know, there has to be studies done to show that this methodology actually works. But the unfortunate reality is there are very limited healthcare-related studies to do with refugee populations, especially Rohingya refugees. Um, and fortunately, they have been left out of most studies that have been done, in, again, reflecting their limited access to health care and mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the violation of their human rights. Their, their experience is unique, right, in mm -hmm. what they've experienced as, as an ethnic group. Do you see the results of... PTSD and things like that in your clinic? Yeah, most definitely we do see, I mean, they have, they've, there's wide variation in what they've experienced, some of it very, very traumatic. And yes, a lot of times we do see patients who come in with what can be cl uh, clinically diagnosed as uh, post-traumatic stress dis disorder. Like it affects you in many different ways. It's not necessarily just limited to PTSD. There are patients who suffer from anxiety. There are patients who are su suffering from depression. These were two things that I wanted mm -hmm. to talk about because they're so common in our society mm -hmm. and I'm intrigued and curious as to what that looks like in this population and how accepted and understood mental health is. Mm -hmm. So that again, that is, I guess this is like a difficult topic because like, you know, we cannot, like, I cannot quote statistics to you about what is the prevalence of, say, anxiety or depression in the Rohingya population, simply because there has not been a lot of studies conducted on this. Whatever has been conducted is, you know, 
is very restricted in the kind of information that we've been able to access. However, based on clinical experience, we do see a lot of different kinds of mental health related issues. Mental health is such an integral part of your cultural, societal, and religious beliefs mm-hmm. that it's very much impacted by what you believe in and what your um, idea of health is, what your idea of mental health is, that it's also very dis- difficult to have conversations about it uh, with uh, the Rohingya community sometimes because some words for like mental health problems don't actually exist in their language uh, or are not commonly known or used by the people who are communicating with them. And what, exactly. I, what I mean by that is the people who are having conversations regarding, say, mental health problems are interpreters and translators who themselves may be Bangladeshi or Rohingya, and both in Bangladesh and in Rohingya culture, mental health in itself is not recognized as, you know, illness or disease it's attributed to other things like your beliefs your culture it's it's uh it's not recognized as like a health problem the way western medicine recognizes it as a health problem and they don't have the same perceptions about what causes anxiety and depression Mm -hmm. as what western medicine teaches so for them it might be that they are being possessed by spirits or for them it might be uh, not having enough faith uh, which is why they're feeling down. Other explanations for mental health problems than what my Western medicine teaches. Do you feel that you've learned a lot about Rohingya culture in this way? So there is a lot of learning I most definitely had to do. In order to understand a patient's problem, you have to understand where they're coming from and what they believe uh, or what they understand about disease and health. Sometimes patients, for example, would come to us and uh, they would, they're not able to move a leg and they would, they would say to us that bad air has touched their leg, which is why they're not able to move it. Now, that could be many, many different things when you think about it clinically. Uh, I'm not going to go into like specific diagnosis, but when I'm trying to explain to a patient what is actually wrong with them uh, based off of my clinical diagnosis, then, you know, there is like this this linguistic hurdle that we have to cross because I have to explain things to them in their terms, in the terms that they will find acceptable. For example, say babies, so they have perceptions about what makes babies sick and what is a sick baby and what's a healthy baby. So, for example, explaining uh, simple things like burping a baby you could say, you know, if you do, if you practice this thing where, you know, you hold the baby up and then, you know, you burp the baby, then the baby feels better and the baby is actually healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, explaining this to them, if you just say that, that's not enough because they will, they'll not, they'll not be convinced. They'll, they'll, they'll think, okay, you're just <laughs> showing me what you think needs to be done by, with a baby. But if you put it in their terms, like if you hold the baby up like this and then, you know, you do, you burp the baby, it releases air from their body and air is something they associate with disease and being sick. Then they understand and they're like, okay, so you're releasing the air from the body and so the baby is actually getting healthy. Got you. So basically that comes to building rapport with your patients. It's like when I'm here, Mm -hmm. I might speak English in a different way so that I'm more understood, you know, Mm -hmm. a bit slower or a bit more clearly than how I do with my friends in London when I talk really fast. Mm -hmm. Um, So it comes back to a mutual understanding of each other. And that is really interesting because I guess I didn't even think 
think of that as an aspect to what you're doing? As, it's actually a very important aspect of what we do because you can give out free medicines, but will your patient take them? So now we've covered a bit of background about the Rohingya and their beliefs when it comes to illness and medicine. I'm sure you're wondering what that means for them right now in the midst of the outbreak of COVID-19. I definitely was. So I asked Miriam via WhatsApp and despite there being no internet or phone connection in the camp, she managed to send me a few voice notes from outside it. What do the Rohingya know about COVID-19 and how do they feel about it? Uh, They believe it's a deadly disease that is spreading from person to person. There is a degree of belief that it will not affect them because they're Muslim. I guess what I'm trying to say is like um, uh, the disease is God's will. So if God wills, it will happen to them. And if he doesn't will, it will not affect them. But there is generally speaking a lot of fear associated with uh, COVID-19, um, partially because of a lack of understanding, partially because of um, rumors flying around, such as like um, some people believe that if they had the symptoms of COVID-19 and they went to a healthcare facility, then the, the physicians or the healthcare staff would shoot them on site because they don't want that disease to be at treated at the facility or whatnot. The thing is, you think about the Rohingyas. They are a ethnic minority that have been in Myanmar for generations. Until Bangladesh, until this influx, they'd never actually ever been exposed to Western medicine. Mm-hmm. Many times they'd never seen a doctor. Many times they'd never heard of any other medicine outside of paracetamol. If they got fever, they would, they've told me about some practices like they would wrap up the patient in a fishnet. Okay. And, um, like as somebody who practices Western medicine, I have no idea how that would help cure fever. <laughs> yeah. But that's what they did because they had no alternatives. But then because they did not have access to Western medicine, they had developed their own sort of plant-based and other sort of alternative medicine, medicine and medical practices. Uh, For example, grinding up leaves and making pastes out of leaves and things of that sort. Uh, The use of like betel nut leaf, for example. Cool, really, isn't it? It must have been interesting for you to see how a population had actually kind of uh, treated themselves mm-hmm. with the limited resources that they and, had. And it is very interesting. And I don't want to be dismissive about any of it because I will not claim that we know so much about medicine that we, we, we have right. it right. But mm-hmm. also, this is the first time that this population is exposed to the outside world. Yeah. This is the first time for many of them that they're seeing Westerners and foreigners and people who look dramatically different from them. So can you imagine if uh, you are an ethnic minority in a country and there are people who look different from you, who treat you in a very negative sort of way, and then you come to a new place and you don't know anyone and you don't know anything, and then all of, all of a sudden there are other people who also look very different from you, who have other cultural and you know social practices from you, who are telling you this is what's best yeah. for you. What would make them believe what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, why would they trust you? Yeah, what, what would make them trust you? Like, what reason do they have to trust you? And generally, have you found that people do... 
I do feel like the Rohingya community has had uh, through the foreign assistance and through the foreign aid and they have had an experience which has made them somewhat trust mm-hmm. others they have become more open towards others and just understanding you know uh, people who uh, may not necessarily look like them or may not necessarily have the same cultural practices as them but who mean well and you know who wa- want the best for them want to help, yeah want the best for them yeah i hear that your clinic has a very good reputation in the camp for the fact that it has western doctors and you have volunteers coming from all over the world it, it has brought the clinic a, a sort of name and reputation within the community and also we have tried to provide the best possible service to them even within the constraints of the resources that we have one of the principles that we like to follow is that i would treat a patient here like i would treat a patient back home whether you're coming from the west or whether you're coming from like a city in dhaka you would treat the patient the same way as in with the same degree of respect with the same degree of attention to their dignity and with the same degree of maintaining their confidentiality with the same degree of care and attention that mm-hmm. I would treat a patient anywhere else in the world and that's the principle that my organization likes to follow and that's a, a principle that our volunteers are encouraged to follow and and that's what they do the thing is you can come in and you can start seeing patients and start telling patients what is best for them you can come in and try to understand them and get their perspective on what they feel is what they need and what they don't need and what is good for them and come to a mutual agreement about what's best for them what we try to encourage is to hear their voice to hear their side of the story and to kind of you know factor in where they are where they're coming from who they are and who we are and provide a service that is the best suited for them having all of those factors in consideration mm-hmm. it's very easy to say that somebody is a refugee so there is no like accountability on the part of those who are providing assistance it's easy to say that because there is no system in place yep. whereby a a refugee patient will be able to say that i was uh, not treated with adequate care or there was negligence on the part of somebody in my care but we try to maintain the same level of service and the same level of care despite the lack of litigation in this setting as we would in any other setting where there is litigation and where there is accountability that's what we aim to do because at the end of the day all human beings are the same and they are all equal and it is no, no matter where you are and what setting you are in they deserve to be treated with the highest level of respect and dignity and care there is a story i want to tell you though as a reflection of what it means for them about understanding and trust and mm-hmm. and stuff i'd already been in camp for almost a year when this happened one day a patient came to the clinic i i, t- I spoke with her about whatever complaints she'd come in with mm-hmm. and she'd given me a pretty clear idea of what uh what her problem was and i thought to myself i need to examine this patient to fully understand and you know come to uh, a diagnosis 
But for whatever reason, uh, I was pulled out of the consultation room to attend to a different matter. I went out for maybe like a minute or two and then I returned. When I returned, she was crying and I had no idea what just happened, like why I all of a sudden I find my patient in tears. So I asked her what's going on and like what's bothering her, what's disturbing her what and, happened? She, yeah. and you know what made her cry and what she said to me was when I walked into this clinic, somebody pointed something at my head and um, they did something. And now I don't know if I'm Muslim or not anymore. And I suppose like the only thing that we have that is ever used on somebody's head is a thermometer to check the temperature. Okay. But the thing is, she'd never seen this thing before. And there are so many other experiences that she might have gone through uh, you know, whether it's watching somebody being shot. But for her, this was one of the scariest things, like, because they were persecuted for their faith. Mm -hmm. They were Muslims in a, a country which was Buddhist minor, a majority, and they were specifically persecuted for being Muslim. And for them, their faith is the most important thing. And then they come to this clinic where there are many people who are who both look like them and then don't look like them and who are both um, you know Bangladeshi Rohingya and then there's Westerners and foreigners and you know it really hit me that I've been here for so long and it just never occurred to me that a device as a like a thermometer could actually be frightening to somebody mm -hmm. and they would actually question whether you know, whether that device would, you know, somehow affect their integrity and their faith. It was just something that really, really, like, it was one of those, it's like, I, like, like I'm saying, it's, I'm talking about it again, because it just really struck me that I just think, I don't even think about a thermometer. It's just, it is what it is. I use it to check temperature. For her, it, this was like perhaps a reminder of an incident or perhaps something that she's never been exposed to. And it's just like she's questioning so much and it's brought her to tears for having her temperature checked. Something that we take so much for granted. So what that comes down to to me is actually there's a big education piece here as well, yes. right? Like one of the things that you do is building rapport. The main thing that you're doing is kind of treating people. But actually, there's also this education piece kind of in between that that is people understanding what you're doing and understanding what a thermometer is and that you can't, no one can take away your belief or your faith, whatever they do to you. These stories are really, really great to hear because they're examples of things that you just wouldn't even think about. It's like there were many times with my little brothers when they came to the UK that I was like, of course, you know, it seems so obvious now. Mm -hmm. For example, the first day that my little brother, the first one, came to my house, he didn't eat very much and we made a meal that we thought was something that he would really enjoy. It was an Eritrean recipe that my dad had found online. And what I realized afterwards it was because he'd never used a knife and fork and he was trying to copy us and he didn't really know what, what he was doing. And mm -hmm. like, actually, it took us a few days before we were like, OK, well, we'll just add some bread to this meal so he can eat with that and let him know that he can eat with his hands. And it's not a big deal. And like, we're all fine with that. It's interesting that you say that because those are like those small gestures. Like this is kind of similar to what, you know, we're, the discussion we were having last night. But those are the kind of small gestures that make it easier and more comfortable for the other individual to start, 
you know, implementing their own practices or their own understanding of how Mm -hmm. they want to do things make it seem like it's okay for you to eat with your hands. And that's completely acceptable. That will make the person so much more comfortable than spending like 10 weeks trying to teach them how to use a knife and fork. Uh-huh. And then once, Because that will come, potentially, yeah, maybe, even if it doesn't. Yeah. But yeah, it's like taking the importance away from that and more about you doing you, yeah, right? Because you being comfortable in your own skin first and then eventually learning things to you know, integrate better. What, but then in a medical sense, what do you do if those things that people are doing mm-hmm. are, are not good for their health? So, for example, if them doing them, eating in a certain way or living in a certain way or chewing this tobacco that everyone chews here Mm -hmm. or whatever, how do you encourage people to make positive changes? That's universal, no matter which setting you're working in. Whether you're in the West or whether you're working in a refugee camp, I think that is universal and it follows similar principles, which is really educating patients about... uh, the benefits mm-hmm. of healthier lifestyle practices and the detrimental effects of whatever they're engaging in and really explaining that to them because the the key thing that empowers a human being is knowledge so providing knowledge and providing knowledge in a language that they understand and in a methodology that is palatable to them that's the key you know, um, I could stand here and give you a lecture for two hours about the harmful effects of smoking and it will not change anything in you unless I put it in a language that, you know, you understand and I explain to you why and how and give examples. So it's the same principle here as well. So like really empowering them with knowledge is what we try to do in in order to bring about positive change. So what does this mean for a community of over 1 million refugees who have no access to the internet, no phone signal and no contact to the outside world, which is currently in the midst of a pandemic which is heading their way? Here's another voice note from Miriam this week. She sounds notably more tired. So in terms of planning for the COVID-19, most majority of the efforts are directed towards making the community more aware of what the disease is and how to prevent it um, by social distancing and hand washing and hygiene promotion. The UN agencies have gotten together and they're setting up isolation and treatment units in and around the camp, each of them 200 beds. Uh, It is anticipated that the total bed capacity for isolation will be somewhere uh, between 900 and 1,000 beds. Challenges, there are many challenges with like responding to this, like the number of tests are very limited um, in the capacity for testing is very limited as well. For treatment centers as well, like one of the main treatments is oxygen. And unfortunately, uh, the, the cylinders are in short supply, the refills, the stations are in short supply. Um, there just seems to be like a generalized um, deficiency or like a short supply of medical equipment, medical supplies, 
uh, with the lockdown measures in the various countries, like globally, um, the different sort of NGOs are not even able to bring in uh, medical supplies and medical equipment from other countries. So they've placed the orders, but because of the borders being closed, nothing is able to come into the country, which is actually aggravating the situation um, more and making preparations more difficult. There's also a lot of concerns like um, limited access to the internet, which makes it very difficult for even the healthcare workers in the camps to communicate with each other and facilitating this is difficult without access to the mobile networks and the internet. And so that is something that sort like, you know, is a big challenge for us who work frontline. But Miriam and the other doctors in the camp have always been creative with the minimal resources that they have. Let's go back to some more examples of this. Millie was telling me about sling things where it was like two pieces of bamboo and like a little hammock that was like yeah. an ambulance for the camp. We basically call it a bambulance. So it's one a bamboo. bambulance. That's so good. <laughs> it's like a bamboo with one piece of cloth that's tied on two ends to this one bamboo and, and the patient lies in the, in the middle. And, it's, and the bamboo is carried on the shoulders of two individuals. And that's how they transport patients throughout the camp, uh, from the shelter to the facility, facility to the ambulance. There are, sometimes they have uh, baby ambulances where they put a basket and tie it up with ropes and hang it suspended from a, from a piece of bamboo. And Miriam had more examples of innovative ideas to keep healthy. Earlier I mentioned, you know, how it's difficult for patients to go for a walk for 30 minutes. We found alternative solutions like, okay, maybe you can't go outside. You can do like you can pace back and forth inside your shelter. Yeah. (laughs) Like finding things of that sort. Like Uh maybe there's an alternative thing that you can do or that uh, something you can engage in. Finding a neighbor to help you out when you're carrying water for like long distances, which are heavy and that causes body aches for you. Maybe you can find somebody to help you out yeah. with this. I would never claim that we've perfected this. We've not found the perfect solution for all of these problems. And there are so many problems that are still ongoing and that will come up and that will need attention as the crisis continues. But the thing is to just keep trying our best. One of the things we've all constantly faced challenges with is getting patients to have babies at facilities because having babies at home, so many moms die and then so many babies die. But the thing is, you know, there are so many barriers that they have to actually go to a facility when they don't know what's going to happen there. They have some conceptions and misconceptions based off of their experiences in Myanmar. And then they, like, it's just really letting them know about what would happen once they were there. Like, this is a midwife who will help you, who has training. These are the equipment we would use to help you have a safe delivery. Because what conditions are at your house right now is not conducive to a good delivery, not conducive to having a healthy baby or having a healthy mom. And if you do get more sick, then it's more difficult to get you from where you are to a hospital where you can get treatment. Exactly. Yeah. So these are like many, many challenges that, you know, that are there. And there are 
existing challenges that we are working constantly working towards um, addressing so that you know we can de- deliver a better service. So I'm really interested in how this period of your life since you've been here coming up to two years right mm-hmm. has impacted you emotionally. Do you feel like that's something that you have to process yourself? And has there been times where it's been difficult for you or patience that you found difficult? I mean, that's a, that's like, that's a big question. I know, I know. It's, and that's a, that's a tough question too, because uh, the way I view it is you cannot come into a situation like this and expect to walk away from it without being affected in one way, one way shape, form or another. Because of simply the intensity of the situation, there are people who, who have suffered a lot. There are situations which can tend to be very difficult. A lot of times, with all of the constraints that are in place, it's very frustrating to not be able to do what you, what you know can be done. Mm-hmm. There are so many diseases that we simply cannot address, but we still have patients coming to us for treatment. So all of these things will affect us in one way, shape, or the other. Me, personally, I've been through many dramatic changes as an individual in my emotional state, in the way I think, in the way I view the world, simply as a consequence of my experiences of being here. It definitely affected me emotionally in many, many ways. Uh, You know... People like we are interested in humanitarian work because we empathize with the people that we are coming in to serve. And many, many a times, if you can earn their trust, patients will really open up to you and they will tell you about all of their experiences. And those experiences, uh, there's something called uh, secondhand trauma. When you listen to somebody's story, you kind of experience it yourself in uh, like a secondhand experience. So, you know, this is what I've learned is that a lot of times when I first came here, I did not know that some of the emotions that I was feeling are not actually my own emotions, but the emotions I've acquired through listening to somebody's yeah, experiences. Trauma leaks onto you, I find, mm-hmm. if you don't know how to process that. I've had that many a time where because I'm somebody who does like to connect with people Mm -hmm. quite intensely and really give them my time and feel what they're feeling and try and understand and feel compassion and empathy and Mm -hmm. really get into their shoes, then I'm left feeling also that secondary trauma, right? And that's why I ask you this question, because I can imagine that you do deal with a lot on the day-to-day, more than your average person, that is for sure. That is exactly how it is. You know, when you try to empathize, you try to understand it from their perspective. And in doing so, you actually, you have your own version of, you know, uh, emotional trauma. And you have your own version of, uh, you know, psychological changes that you go through. And this is something I had to learn after being here for a while, that a lot of times when I was experiencing frustration or anger, I was actually expressing what I acquired through my patients. A lot of times when I was experiencing a lot of sadness or despair, um, and despair is like, you know, one of those emotions, like there is nothing I am in want of. So what do I have to despair about? But really it's like, 
you know, what I'm, what I'm experiencing is what my patients are experiencing and they're expressing to me. And, um, and if you don't realize these things, you know, you subconsciously kind of imbibe, imbibe it from them and then it's there and you don't know unless you actually learn how to deal with it mm-hmm. you don't know what to do with it it's there and then it does affect you in your life in other ways your social life and your familial life gets affected based off of the kind of emotions you express to your friends and your family and a lot of times those emotions and those expressions may be warranted and a lot of times they may not be warranted uh, but you're misplacing an emotion that is uh, not yours to begin with originally. And it's learning that and learning to deal with that. So that's been a learning experience. So how do you do that? What uh, do you do? Uh, that's, again, tough question. So <laughs> I have support systems. So I have people who I can uh, openly discuss certain things with. So there's so many layers to it, right? Because when you're talking about a patient-physician relationship, there is this whole matter of confidentiality everything they say to me has to remain confidential um i have to respect that because that is the only way they will open up to me Mm -hmm. and i have to project that to them that anything you say to me is safe so then when i have to discuss something with somebody else i have to be very selective and very careful about what i say how i say and how i phrase it because I do not want to, by mistakes, give away information or anything that would, you know, be a breach of confidence for my patient. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have this oath, you know, we take the secrets to the grave. You know, whatever a patient confides in me, I will take it to my grave. Yeah. I mean, that's not how the oath is phrased, but that's, but that's what it means. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what it means. And, and it is so important because I, if uh, me, myself, if I imagine myself as a patient or when I have been a patient, it, I cannot um, find, I do not find it acceptable that anyone would discuss anything that I've said to them with anyone else. Absolutely. Yeah. While respecting that, I also have to, you know, like kind of decompress and talk about things. And, and it's, the thing is, for me, it's like twofold, because on the one hand, I not only have patients who open and confide in me, but I also have healthcare workers and humanitarians who are going through the same experiences and receiving secondhand trauma and, uh, you know, feeling a lot of times frustrated because they can't help the patients the way they thought they could or the way they wanted to simply because of a lack of resources. For them to be able to also have an outlet, you know, so they will come and they will talk to Mm -hmm. me. So I'm I'm receiving it from my patients. I'm receiving it also from my colleagues and uh, my friends were also involved in the same sector. Yeah. So, you know, it's really about having that support system and having an outlet and having uh, the right people to talk to. It's not like a, a you know, quick fix solution, you know, right. you talk to somebody and all of a sudden you feel better. It's not like that. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that we learn how to cope in different ways and it's finding what help, what, you know, like what works for you. Mm-hmm. And also recognizing, because really the first step is knowing that you are being affected and then it's okay and it's acceptable. And that is something that's likely to happen as a consequence of the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's accepting that. And then it's also reaching out for help when you need it and recognizing that and acknowledging that as well, that I need help and I'm going to do something about mm-hmm. it and then reaching out. 
One of the things I realized is there is no perfect formula for uh, humanitarian assistance. There is not just one one idea and this is the right idea. In fact, it's always evolving and a lot of times you learn people will practice something and then you will realize the good of it and the bad of it really identifying the good and you know consolidating and building upon the good that's come out of each crisis you know there have been many crises mm-hmm. prior to this and there will be more to come right especially and, in terms of like environmental impact mm-hmm. in within bangladesh even mm-hmm. Yes, most definitely. Bangladesh is a country which, again, I don't know if it, the world is aware of this or not, but it's uh, it's a country where we have a lot of slums and people are living in living conditions which, you know, in any other setting would be considered appalling. Like, you know, water in your, in, within your shelters, your shelters don't have doors. Mm. There's like 12, 13, 14 people in like a very small land area hygienic issues, you know, access to clean drinking water and food, all of these things are a problem for even like many places within Bangladesh. I mean, it's something that definitely needs more people to pay attention to globally, whether Mm. you are in the medical field or any other field, people need to be more aware, need to be more interested and people need to be more involved whether it's from their home or whether it's out in the field, they need to be more involved. I, I don't think we can ignore and, you know, close our eyes anymore. Absolutely, not with mm-hmm. this amount of information that's accessible to us literally at our fingertips as well. Mm-hmm. Now, with social media, with the internet and how connected we all are, we can't pretend that we don't know anymore about what's going on either, mm-hmm. right? So we do all have a responsibility to take some kind of action. Mm-hmm. So on that note, how do you think we do engage people to learning more, taking action, educating themselves on not just the Rohingya, but also other crises around the world. And do you have any ideas of how we can encourage that within our general society? Uh-huh. Again, <laughs> Huge question, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm hitting big, you with the big ones. <laughs> big question. And honestly, I can't claim to know what the right answer is. Um, I, I will say that it falls on all of us who are aware and who, I say, some somebody who's listening to this podcast obviously knows enough to listen to a podcast about refugees and Rohingyas and Bangladesh and crisis. So if if somebody has come this far, then they can help somebody else get to this point at least. We help bring each other towards this place where knowledge is. So if you know something, then tell somebody else who might know a little bit less or be a bit more un, a bit unaware so that they can at least know what you know. And then it's really up to them what they want to do with that knowledge and information, right? So it could be that you're sitting at home and all you do is share that information either on social media or have a conversation with your friend at home over a cup of tea. It could be that you are helping out the humanitarian community with financial aid or with your ideas or with your time. I mean, there really is, or like even listening to a friend who's involved in humanitarian work and just letting them let off steam. Like there's literally no reason to say I cannot help mm-hmm. because I don't have this, that, or the other, or I can't this, that, or the other. There's literally no reason to say that because there's always a way. Everyone has some unique skill or offering mm. in this world, yes, right? Exactly. So it's having a look in yourself as to what that might be and 
and, doing it. And I, and I guess this is where the answer to your first question is. What made me actually come here? There was um, a moment in early 2018, like at the very beginning of the year, where I asked myself what I had and what I could do. Like, I have no money. I have no no way to transfer, tra- you know, travel here and there. I, I, like, I, I don't have anything with which I can help anybody. But the only thing I do have is some clinical knowledge. That's all I have. That's a lot. <laughs> That's like, but, but the thing is, I don't have like followers on, uh, you know, mm. like on social media or whatever. Like, I don't have anything. But you have an education. But I have, medicine. have just one thing and one thing only that is a little bit of knowledge with which I could contribute in some way. You have to look in, within yourself to find out what you can do and then use that, whatever it is, use that to help even one person in whatever capacity. I bet you if you were to look within yourself, you would find something and some way where you could contribute. It's really a matter of finding what that is and how you can channel it and finding the people who will help you channel it as well. Exactly. I couldn't put that better myself. And what I took from that is that basically anyone who's listening to this podcast should tell someone else to listen to this podcast, right? At least, if at least that. (laughs) But Miriam, thank you so much for sharing that. I really think that your experiences in the last few years are incredible. And I know that you'll go on to do even more incredible things. And It's an absolute pleasure not just to talk to you today, but to have met you this week. So I appreciate you for what you're doing a lot. Um, thank you for saying that. I can, sure. and it's been an absolute pleasure learning so much from you and all of your experiences with your brother and your family. And you helped me because you helped me deal with so many things, which may seem trivial to other people, or but so important to me. For example, a conversation we had the other night. You've taught me a lot. You know. Well, I don't know about you guys, but Miriam definitely taught me a lot. For someone so young, her intelligence and compassion are remarkable, and I'm grateful to call her a friend. I really hope this episode gave you some insight into healthcare in the biggest refugee camp in the world. If so, please subscribe and leave a review. It really helps more people to find this podcast and for me to get more stories out there. To let me know your thoughts or what you'd like to hear more of over the next few weeks, message me on Instagram at The Worldwide Tribe. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. Alexander Wells for composing our original music and mixing this episode.